This is Finding Center, a daily half-hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Learning from Mistakes. Val Joe Anderson, chair of the BYU Department of Plant and Wildlife Sciences, when these remarks were given, will share his devotional address entitled, Into the Burn. I grew up on a small farm in Sanpete County, Utah, about 70 miles south of Provo. And as I review my life, I recognize the Lord's guidance and perhaps even intervention that's directed me onto paths I would have never thought to pursue myself. From a very young age, I knew that what I wanted to be when I grew up. My grandfather owned a local sawmill, logged his own trees, and as a little boy, I would go to the mountains with him often. And while we were there working, he would uh, uh, be, be working along, and I'd look up on the mountain, and there were some guys in green trucks that would pull up on the ridge line. And I asked Grandpa, who are those guys? And he said, well, those are forest rangers. I, I said, well, what do they do? And he said, well, they sit up there in their green trucks, drive around the forest, and watch other people work. <laughs> and immediately, I knew what I wanted to be when I grew up. That was kind of one of those revelatory moments. So I uh, never had to wonder. I worked really hard through college. I wanted to be a good student. And nearing the end of my degree, I could almost feel the relaxing seat of my new green truck. But God had other plans for me. Just before I graduated, he let Ronald Reagan get elected to be the president. And one of Reagan's first actions was to freeze all federal hiring. So, no forest ranger for me. And no green truck. I continued on to a master's program doing research in North Africa, and then on to a Ph.D. in another foreign place, Texas. Before, <laughs> uh, before I'd finished there, I found myself back here at BYU. And I thank God that He has enough caring for me to guide my path. BYU is a wonderful place to work and learn. And in my early life, I would never have been able to dream of this job that's given me and my family so many wonderful opportunities. The only bad thing is that I had to buy my own green truck. But I still get to watch other people work. They're called students. Graduates and undergraduates. Well, we all have to learn. We all have to be taught. I've heard it said that there are three kinds of learners. There are non-learners, people who make mistakes and then make the same mistake time after time. And then there are experienced learners. They make a mistake once and learn from it, never to make the same mistake again. Then there are observational learners those who observe the consequences of others making the mistake and learn from that, never having to make the mistake themselves at all. While we all fall into each of these categories, sometimes, by nature, I mostly fit the middle group. Growing up, I was a learn-by-doing kind of kid. Among other family chores was the twice-daily milking of our small herd of Jersey cows. We milked by hand. And being the baby of the family and too small to milk, my assignment was to herd the cows in and out of the barn and then clean up the milk barn floors at the end of each milking session. 
It seemed as if those cows would save up all night so they could relieve themselves on my shiny clean floor. Being an observant child, I noticed that before they made their green deposit, they always lifted their tail. Well, that signal gave me the best idea. I would stand by with my large aluminum scoop shovel, and when the tail went up, the scoop went under, and I caught the prize before it had a chance to splatter all over that milk barn floor. (laughs) My dad, seemingly amused and unimpressed by my creativity, said, Son, I wouldn't do that if I were you. And I thought to myself, yeah, sure, but you don't have to clean up this mess every day. So I chose to ignore him, and he allowed it. A couple of days later, after nearly total and satisfying success, the tail went up, the scoop went under, and midway through the event, that cow gave a great cough. (laughs) Now at my age and that stature, I had a bird's eye view of this fine part of the cow's anatomy. And that cough sent a spray of pasty liquid green that covered me from head to toe. I stood there mortified. My dad came over laughing and wiped the outline of first the one eye, then the other, and simply said, I told you not to do that. It was my first lesson of lean not unto thine own understanding. (laughs) It was a lesson that at that moment I would have liked to have learned by obedience and trust. Another great lesson was learned when, as a young man of 18, I took a summer job with the U.S. Forest Service. One of our duties was to be part of a 20-man fire crew that could be called out from time to time to fight wildfires. Earlier, a wildfire claimed the lives of four firefighters when, in a panic, they failed to follow the direction of their crew boss and tried to outrun an unexpected, fierce advance of a fire. The shockwaves of that incident were felt around the region, and rigorous training ensued. Following without hesitation or question, the command of the crew boss was given particular emphasis. We fought several fires that season, and then late in August, as our crew was called out to fight a wildfire in Southern California, this was a large fire that had many crews dispatched to fight it. Our crew, along with two other crews, was assigned a sector of the fire. It was a chaparral brush fire that had a tremendous fine fuel load of dried grasses and weeds in the understory. We were obliged to make a two-mile hike from the nearest road through the brush to where the fire was burning. It was not a particularly intense blaze, and we were to build black line, a fire line right against the burning edge of the fire. As our three 20-man crews, marching single file through the brush, approached the fire, the sector boss suddenly appeared on the nearby ridge line, and his urgent command was to become indelibly impressed upon my mind. His voice screamed through our radios, She's blowing up! She's blowing up! Into the burn! My pulse raced and my heart sank as I watched the small campfire-type flames fanned on by an intense wind shift transform into a raging inferno racing directly toward us. The command of Into the Burn 
meant that we would charge through the fire and into the area where the fire had consumed the fuel. My instinctive impulse was to turn and run, and I could see others considering that option. Our crew boss, without hesitation, reiterated the command, Into the burn! And though it did not seem the intuitive thing to do, my training and my memory of the tragic earlier deaths compelled me to follow my leader through that wall of fire. On the other side, we found a blackened moonscape where the fire could not return. With eyes and lungs burning from the heat, whirling smoke and ash, we relented to dancing on the top of hot rocks to protect our feet from the searing deep ash. We had made the right decision and were preserved. After about 30 minutes, the wind died down and we were able to cross back out of the burn and begin our black line. This was an intense lesson that helped me to understand the importance of knowing in advance who you should trust and follow without hesitation especially when the correct choice may be obscured by our own limited experience or our instinctive bias. That lesson was reinforced in my life just a few years ago when I was invited to participate in a grizzly bear study in Alaska with uh, and now one of our professors, Dr. Tom Smith. Uh, we were to observe the responses of grizzlies to the influences of smells, sounds, and colors that humans bring into the backcountry. Part of that experience was a safety training session, which included instruction of what to do if approached or charged by a bear. If charged by a grizzly, the instruction we received was to turn and face the bear. Do not run and invoke that predator-prey killing response. Uh, make yourself as big in posture as possible and yell at the bear to go away. Well, I had been in Alaska before and I had tried to search to see a bear and hadn't been too lucky. So I wasn't too concerned, and I took the training somewhat lightly. Shortly after the training, the bear biologist that had trained us asked if I wanted to go with him to wade the river and count bears. Of course, I couldn't wait. We donned our chest waders and were off for a two-kilometer walk in a river. I couldn't believe all the bears and how close we were and how much they didn't seem to care. In that walk, we counted over 40 grizzlies. And on our way back, we got behind a mother bear and her three little cubs. She was going painfully slow. And I suggested that we pass her. The biologist said that that was only a good idea if I was tired of breathing. So we waited until a place where the river made a great horseshoe bend, and we had our chance to cut through on a brushy trail to get ahead of her. In our haste, we apparently intruded on another bear that we hadn't seen. And as I waddled down the path behind my guide, I heard the hoof and the paw pounding of another large bear coming up quickly behind us. The biologist, true to his training, faced the attack, taking up a firm stand right behind me. <laughs> As I turned to face the bear, armed only with my small can of bear mace, it dawned on me why they had invited this great big juicy botanist to join the party. I mean, what bear in the right mind would choose a tofu diet burger biologist? 
when they could have the super double deluxe meal, tender and juicy botanist, and yes, fries with that. Well, while turning to run seemed the prudent thing to do, I trusted and followed the instruction I had received. Facing the bear, and in my deepest, most menacing voice, I yelled repeatedly, Go away, bear! (laughs) Well, the bear pulled up just short of me. She paused for what seemed to be an eternal moment twisted her head back and forth, and then just slipped away into the underbrush. As I regained my faculties, I realized that I had begun to breathe again. After checking to be sure that I still had all of my body parts and functions, I followed my biologist friend back to camp, who was explaining how that charge really hadn't been so bad. I've often reflected back on these occasions and considered the faith I had in the wisdom and decisions of my Forest Service crew boss and the bear biologist trainer, and in the pre-event decision that I had made to follow them. I've pondered the analogous circumstances in which many of our recorded prophets had found themselves being faced with commands from God that were, if anything, counterintuitive. How and why did they respond? I think of the response of Adam to the angel when asked why he offered sacrifices. I know not, save the Lord commanded me. Burning the biggest, unflawed, best of his flock and the harvest must have seemed such a waste. Noah, likewise, was given a command which seemed very odd. He built a huge and immovable ship far from a water's edge. He likely endured endless ridicule at the highly improbable event that the whole earth being consumed by a flood and then hence the utility of such a vessel. When Abraham, after years of faithful obedience, was finally blessed with a child, his mind and heart must have undoubtedly questioned the command to take his only son to the mount and offer him a sacrifice. Sadly, but willing to do the Lord's will, based on his faith, Abraham built an altar and nearly executed his son before the Lord interceded and accepted his diligence as the offering. Perhaps more similar to my own circumstance and experience, I can relate to the uncertainty that must have crossed the minds of the children of Israel as Moses gave the command to follow him into the depths of the Red Sea to escape the armies of Egypt. Well, a question that is logically posed is, how do I know who to trust and follow? This question brings us back to the styles of learning. We all learn by doing. Experience following a leader will build or destroy our confidence in them according to their record of success. Even as a young commander, Moroni led his people successfully in war against the Lamanites. But he also led during peacetime, devoting himself to preparations of his people and fortifying their lands. These people recognized that following Moroni was a safe and prudent decision. Perhaps more critical than recognizing temporal leadership of men is the recognition of a divine influence and the power of His Spirit to direct our lives. 
Nearing the end of my master's program, I had the opportunity to attend an international professional meeting in Adelaide, Australia. A post-conference tour took us on a 10-day adventure from Adelaide on the south coast across the outback to Darwin on the north coast. Out in the middle, we stopped near Alice Springs, a place called Ayers Rock. This is a large sandstone dome that seemingly rises up with nearly vertical walls over 1,100 feet from the desert floor. A tourist route up the most gentle slope has metal posts cemented into the stone and connected to each other with chains. Even so, this is only a feat for the fit and the adventurous. The night before our chance to assail the rock, a South African adventurer, a park ranger, and my roommate decided to do a free climb on the back side of Ayers Rock. This plan, hatched out over a few too many at the local bar, was shared with me upon my roommate's return to our room. I'm still not sure how, but early the next morning, I found myself following these characters in the ascent. The first 500 feet wasn't so bad, but being the only climbing novice in the group, I was lagging behind, getting tired, and a little nervous. It was apparent that we were past the point of returning, as I found going up the steep sandstone was much easier than going down. Three-quarters of the way up, I found a little impression in which I could rest. I sat there, and I knew I was in trouble. My legs had turned to jelly and quivered uncontrollably. I was scared nearly to the point of panic. My companions, all experienced climbers, were struggling to find solid grips as the sandstone composition was flaky near the top. Seemingly strong grips would just peel off when exposed to weight. As I sat there on my perch and looked out over that vast, beautiful desert, I thought my family might want to know what I saw in my last moments on earth. I pulled out my camera, slipped off the case, snapped a couple of photos, and was brought back to reality as my camera case tumbled down the slope and previewed my unseemly path to the bottom. Paralyzed with fear, realizing one slip would have me ending with a splat, I wished I had told somebody where we had gone, but no one knew. I'm not even sure what we were doing was legal, and my hungover companions were not bolstering any confidence. I felt despair and alone. And then a thought occurred, and I instantly remembered that somebody knew where I was. God knew. In an awkward beginning, realizing he knew how I had ended up in this predicament, and also knowing I had probably not listened to still-voiced counsel, I began to plead with the Lord. In an effort to show my sincerity, I entered into one of those deal-making prayers. Lord, I'll give up this and this and maybe even that. Uh, and I'll do this and this if you'll just get me out of this mess. It was then I realized that my legs had stopped trembling. My breathing had slowed and peace came over me. My group had found a way up the slope, and though it was the most treacherous, the steepest, 
and required the greatest strength and effort, I seemingly scrambled up to the top with a renewed confidence. That was one of those moments in life where you receive an infusion of spiritual reality and gain a sense of who you can really trust in every place and in every circumstance. From time to time, we can have these powerful manifestations of His power and presence. It often comes when we are sufficiently humbled by external forces, but can come more often and more powerfully when we mature to true discipleship. Through training and the development of faith, I take courage in the words of Nephi when he told his father Lehi, I will go and do the things which the Lord hath commanded, for I know that the Lord giveth no commandments unto the children of men, save he shall prepare a way for them that they may accomplish the thing which he hath commanded them. Part of our mission on earth is to exercise agency and be tested to see if we can have the faith to do all things whatsoever the Lord their God shall command them. I am reminded of Saul's experience. After defeating the Amalekites, the Lord had commanded him to utterly destroy the Amalekites and all of their possessions without exception. Instead, Paul brought back the best of the flocks and other spoils to make a sacrifice unto God. He was chastened by the Lord through the prophet Samuel. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. Rather than follow the commandment precisely, Saul did what he thought was best, and he did what was intuitive. Now, an adequate test of our faith must necessarily be something that seems counterintuitive. Otherwise, we could trust in the arm of flesh, lean unto our own understanding, and make the right decision without exercising our faith in God. Early in our marriage, my dear wife Anne introduced a motto for our family, which she has continually taught our children and occasionally has had to remind me, that when the prophet speaks, the debate is over. This sound advice countermands all arguments, justifications, and rationales. Following this simple motto will always be to our benefit. We must each be prepared ourselves and about training our children and others for the trials which will surely come upon us. These trials will undoubtedly take many forms and may be faced alone or by the masses. In any event, our faith must be tested individually and independently. Few will face the unusual and high drama events of Moses, Paul, Nephi, or Joseph Smith in their trials. For most of the saints, their trials will center in the common elements of the gospel that when placed in unusual circumstances will seem impractical, illogical, or impossible. For one, paying a tithing, an honest tithe, may seem inordinately illogical when putting a roof overhead and bread on the table requires more than they have. As a bishop, I sat in council with people who, when pressed to financial extremes, chose not to pay their tithes. I promised them the Lord's blessings as he spoke through Malachi when he said, Prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts. If I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. While I had no fear in the pledging the Lord's promise to them, 
I knew that they could not receive these great blessings if they could not live by faith and prove the Lord by paying tithing first. Other people struggle to accept a call to serve in local wards and stakes or perhaps a full-time mission. These time liabilities may seem to come at an inappropriate or an inconvenient time of life or at a perceived opportunity cost. I have found that my most productive years at work are positively correlated with the years I've dedicated the greatest amount of time to service in the Lord's kingdom. For he has promised that he that seeketh me early shall find me and shall not be forsaken. If you want to find success in your chosen pursuits here at BYU and in the future, spend time to seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. One of my father's greatest challenges was to accept a newly called bishop in our ward, who was a neighbor and, according to my dad, was an irrigation water thief. This is something not to be taken lightly in a desert environment. Dad struggled in his faith to allow this good, however imperfect man, to serve him as God's representative. Likewise, newly revealed truth has often caused seemingly faithful members to stumble when it conflicts with their own ideology. Revelations by Joseph Smith relative to the restoration of the practice of plural marriage was a significant blow to the faith of many early saints as was the manifesto which rescinded the practice, causing further fractionation in the Church. As a missionary in Newfoundland in Canada, I saw the 1978 revelation allowing the priesthood to all worthy male members of the Church test the faith of members who struggled to accept this new revelation. Regardless of the trial or the setting, it is important to know in advance who you trust and who you will follow, even if it seems counterintuitive to you. I take courage in the humble expression of one of my heroes, the great prophet Nephi, when he exclaimed, O wretched man that I am! Yea, my heart sorroweth because of my flesh, my soul grieveth because of mine iniquities. I am encompassed about because of the temptations and the sins which do so easily beset me. And when I desire to rejoice, my heart groaneth because of my sins. Nevertheless, I know in whom I have trusted. You see, that's the key. We are not perfect beings. Whatever form it takes in our lives, the time will come when God, by His own voice or that of His prophets, will command, Into the burn! And I bear witness to you that it is critical that at this point in time, you know whom you trust and who you will follow. Because our response to this command will define our faith and it will define our place in the eternities. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for a half hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Learning from Mistakes. Val Joe Anderson gave his talk entitled Into the Burn. Speeches on Finding Center are often edited for broadcast. Find links to the full talks and access the rest of our Finding Center episodes on the free BYU Radio app, available wherever you get your apps. 
Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.